In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body and make it my slave. You know, we often forget, guys, that God has called us to steward the bodies he gave us so that we'll be ready, healthy, and spiritually dangerous to fight the good fight, whether it's working at your job, serving your God, protecting your bride, or being a great dad to your kids. That's why we're so excited to partner with Mountain Tough Fitness Lab. Mountain Tough Fitness Lab is run by Christian men who are passionate about training you to be your best version and to stay dangerous and ready for God. Join me on my journey by going to mountaintough.com. That's M-T-N-T-O-U-G-H and getting your free six-week trial when you type in the code ARENA30. You won't be disappointed. Stay dangerous. If I give you a fish, you eat for a day. If I teach you how to fish, you eat for a lifetime. If I teach you how to teach others how to fish, everybody eats forever. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marked by dust and sweat and blood. Welcome to the Men in the Arena podcast, where we interview specialists in the realm of manhood. Each of our guests is an expert in their chosen field or cause as it relates to men. Our conviction is to call you into the arena of manhood, call you out of the faceless, nameless bleachers, and call you up to be the best version of you. Because when a man gets it, everyone wins. Enjoy today's episode. Men in the Arena Army, we, we salute. salute you. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. I'm Jim Ramos, and I'm here, as usual, with my brother from another mother, Co-host of this show, Dale Culver. How you doing, man? Doing spectacular. Spectacular. Wow. I to change it up. Well, hey, I'm really excited about today, today's guest, man. He's a guy who trains people in Coleman's Master Plan of Evangelism, which is a book. I've read this book, Dale, no less than eight times. Uh, when I got ordained, it was part of my curriculum book. When I was, uh, com- when I was trained as a Youth for Christ uh, director, I had to read this book. And when we launched the ministry, now called Men in the Arena, we used this book to launch the ministry. So really, really excited about this guy. It's going to be a wonderful episode. This guy's full of energy, and I'm excited. So, But before we get into our interview with Scotty, do you have a man word for me? I do. And I was kind of leery and reluctant about this, but I'm going to throw it out there. And it's something that I think uh, resonates with Scotty, and the word is obedience. And the reason why I picked that is I've seen so much lately where people have no idea what it's like or want to be obedient to God's word. Yeah. uh, His will. And uh, when we hear the the word obedience, I think that a lot of people, they they kind of freak out a little bit. Uh, I will not obey. I'm not going to submit to authority um, and all that stuff. And we live in a in some really weird times right now. Um, some sad times. And if I think if our country and, and people in general would obey the word of God, man, imagine what would happen. Well, you know, it's really interesting. I've been in ministry now 30 years. And one of the major shifts I've seen in the Christian church is this one. Back when I was a young man who gave my life to Christ, I read the Bible and what the Bible said I did. I use the Bible to shape everything in my life. Now what I see in the church is I say see people come into the Bible with a predetermined philosophy or doctrine and they shape it they have the they shape that doctrine 
according to what they believe and not the Bible says. And it's just really, really interesting. You know, uh, Robert Lewis worked with Barna Research Group, and they came up with this uh, five essentials. It's this this uh, it's a booklet for men, and it surveyed Christian practicing Christian men, and those practicing Christian men. Uh, most of them believed that homosexuality was okay. Living together before marriage is okay. I mean, just forming their own current philosophies and saying, I'm a Christian, but this Bible stuff doesn't affect me at all. So I think obedience is a huge part of following Jesus. And I think if the Bible says it, that settles it. You know, we need to shape our life around the word of God, not vice versa. So anyway, hey, before we bring Scotty on, do you have a hero story for us today? Yeah, we had a friend of ours from Virginia, John, said that uh, this uh, that he didn't grow up with any good examples of biblical masculinity, and it's been a lot of trying to figure things out on his own, and the podcast has been very helpful. And so um, to, to have someone uh, he respects as a man tell him that he's a man himself was very humbling and meaningful. And so apparently you uh, said that to him, and, and that really... Um, that impacted him, and I've, I've heard you say something about that. What What is it you say about a man telling another man that— Well, only a man can tell another man about being a man. I mean, we love our women, but only the men can usher manhood. So this guy, that that guy John, is a kid who was in my youth group, and he's now a man, and he's now a military guy. And uh, I just watched a dialogue he had on our forum with another man, and he was arguing theologically. He was arguing objectively. He was uh, not losing his temper. He was under control. I just was very proud of him. So I just sent him a personal message. I said, hey, buddy, I'm proud of you, man. You've become a great you know, man. I'm just really, really proud of you. And so that was in response. And I think it's important for us as men to tell other men who are younger, I'm proud of you. We need to bring those guys along because that's those are some of the – in Matthew 17, You know, one of the things Jesus said or God said about Jesus was, this is my son who I love. Listen to him. In other words, I'm proud of this guy. And uh, we need to find opportunities to tell the younger generation we're proud of them. But, hey, appreciate John and what he's doing for the kingdom. So want to bring on our guest today, Scotty Kessler. Scotty is 63 years old, lives in Omaha, Nebraska, with his beautiful wife of 14 years, Tammy. Scotty is the director of the Robert Coleman School of Discipleship and the West Neal School of Sports Ministry and Faith International at Faith International University and Seminary. And that's in Tacoma, Washington. He's an adjunct professor there. He has over 35 years of head and assistant football coaching and consulting experience, having coached primarily at the college level with stops in Illinois, Tennessee, Texas, California, Florida, and Washington State. So it's really cool and my privilege to bring Scotty Kessler on today. Scotty, how you doing, man? Very well. Thank you. Hey, I sure appreciate you taking the time to come hang out with us. I was telling my wife this morning with all your college football experience, you know, down here, the Civil War is a big deal, and Oregon State yeah. beat uh, beat Oregon finally. Yes. And a uh, funny story is, you know, Washington University has an outbreak of COVID, so they yes. are no longer able to play for the Pac-12 championship, so Oregon gets the nod. Yes. And I bet the Oregon State people are going crazy. <laughs> Along with the Washington people. Oh, yeah. Crazy on a different level, though, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Washington hates Oregon, so the fact that they don't play and Oregon gets to is a a brutal quandary for them. 
So how did Wazoo do against Washington uh, this year? I, I don't know. What is that called? The Apple Bowl or something? Yeah, Apple Cup. The Apple Cup. I have yeah. not seen the score, and my presumption is they may not have played. Uh, I am out of touch with all the cancellations and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm in the same boat, man. So, hey, can you take a minute? You have a – just in the brief uh, interaction we've had, you've got a really interesting story. Can you take some time and – uh, give us your personal story, uh, your hobbies, things you enjoy. Give our guys some context. Sure. I was born in North Dakota, but basically moved uh, when I was three months old. So I grew up and lived all my youth in uh, Northern California, a city called Lodi, about 30 miles south of Sacramento. Yep, uh, yep. My family heritage is uh, God-fearing family, Mennonite uh, denomination. Uh, which uh, most people think of that more as Amish, but it actually was very uh, uh, conservative and you wouldn't have been able to distinguish it from a number of other denominations other than they had some uniqueness toward uh, uh, the war. They were pacifists and they had some uniqueness toward being very committed to missions and social, uh, social kinds of help issues. But it was a great, uh, it was a great uh, denomination to grow up under because it was Bible centric and the word of God was primary. Uh, and so uh, I uh, was uh, schooling in Lodi and uh, started at a junior college and then transferred to a school called University of Pacific in Stockton. They no longer have football, but I started playing there and then transferred to the Northwest to a place called Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington, where I finished up my schooling and playing days. I had tremendous experience there with a very gifted, in my opinion, genius, anointed head coach named Frosty Westering, who uh, taught a style and a philosophy of competition that we now call competing biblically. He called it more than winning. Make the big time where you're at. He's the ninth winningest coach of all of college football and uh, won four national championships, played in four other title games at the NAI and Division Three level folks in Oregon would be familiar with them. Jim has ties to Linfield College. Yep. They played and still play in the same league and have a tremendous history of battles. Uh, from there, I wanted to continue to play as long as I could. I had a, a brief tryout with the Denver Broncos. I was a free agent, was waived. And then my first job was with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Hawaii, which I did briefly. And then I, after that, I got into coaching and I basically banged around, mostly in coaching for the next block of, block of decade or two. In the late 90s, I started consulting college football programs primarily, but it was other sports also, and sometimes it was athletic directors and, and some women's sports on the philosophy of competing biblically. And uh, from 97 to 2002, I traveled uh, full-time. I was single until I was 48. So at this time, being on the road 48 weeks a year visiting schools, uh, you know, jumping from one to another was uh, normal for me and acceptable because I had no family as a single guy. Uh, I did that for five years, worked with a bunch and bunch of schools over the years. And then in 2002, one of the schools I was consulting hired me as their head coach in a division three school in Southern Illinois called Greenville College. I was the head coach there three years and then got out of it due to the health of my parents deteriorating in Northern California, um, uh, left coaching as a full-time vocation. But shortly thereafter, was introduced through my college roommate at Pacific Lutheran to a young widow. She was 33, had been widowed a, a, a couple of years. Her husband had been a church planner, had died of cancer at 33. She had two boys at that time, were five and eight when he died. And when I got introduced to her, um, uh, they were a couple of years older than that. 
Uh, we dated for a year and then married and married in 2006. So I've been married 14 years. My sons are 25 and 22 college football players. Both one is out now and, and uh, coaching college football. The other is playing his final year uh, in Oklahoma city, the division two school. And we have a seven-year-old daughter now. So there's five of us. I went from one to four very swiftly and then added a fifth after a few years. We live in Omaha and, uh, and I am uh, doing the best I can to advance the kingdom in my little circles. Man, that is really interesting. So I have a couple questions based on your story. I hope I don't go too personal here. So <laughs> you didn't get married till you're 48. You're an That's athlete. Right. Uh, I'm, yeah. You're a good looking man. Did you feel that God had called you to a life of singleness? No, I actually had been uh, engaged or pre-engaged, meaning um, I had asked gals to marry me two different times in my early 20s and my late 30s, and both of those engagements went uh, poorly, not by my choice. So that was part of my molding uh, of, uh, you know, you learn obedience by what you suffer, and broken relationships were a significant part of my story of my, uh, him driving me uh, by force to the point of surrender and to live a life of not my will, but yours be done. So I, I was not called to singleness, though I continued to be single. And when my, uh, interestingly enough, when my best friend called me because he was an elder at a church in a suburb of Minneapolis, and uh, he called me out of the blue and said, hey, there's a gal here. She's a young widow. She has two young boys. She's very sharp. She's godly. She uh, loves Jesus. What do you think? He said, would you ever think about getting married? He said, do you ever think about getting married? I said, every day and not at all. And <laughs> that, was, that was really where I was at because I wasn't uh, gifted for singleness, but due to circumstances, I was. But I was active in uh, sport-related stuff and mission stuff and ministry. And, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of time to think of it. And frankly, had had enough experience that were hurtful that I really uh, wasn't uh, – uh, super excited to enter that, but I told him I would pray about it. I did. And that same week that he had presented that, I had a couple of dreams, uh, literally. And uh, I felt like the Holy Spirit said that I should attempt to go forward, which I then did long and short. Uh, we ended up, I was living near St. Louis at the time in Southern Illinois. And I moved up to her area, uh, lived with a family. We dated a year in the same city while I continued to do my consulting work. And after a year, then we got married. So, okay. So you talked about surrender. When did you, <laughs> when did you, when did you surrender your life to Christ? How old were you then? Oh, I accepted Jesus when I was four. Um, but which makes me say when I speak about this stuff, say don't despise small beginnings and don't despise youth. I remember the day my mother asked me if I wanted to ask Jesus into my life. I remember sitting across the street from her on, uh, First Street in Lodi, California. We were at the Zeckmeister's house where she was cleaning. She was a home cleaner. And I looked in her face as her head was bowed and she prayed for me. And I have no idea what I was doing. All I know is the transaction happened that ended up being transformational. And because I have such a vivid picture of it, I'm sure that God's hand was in it. And uh, so I walked with God as best I could in a God fearing home from four till until frankly, I transferred to PLU. And when I got in that atmosphere of uh, the kind of climate that Frosty Western developed uh, with an attitude toward competition that was biblical, a lot of guys were there who, in my, uh, my terminology, they loved God, they loved sports, they wanted to stay clean in terms of uh, uh, drinking and alcohol. 
and they wanted to make memories. And in that climate and culture, uh, we worked out our salvation with fear and trembling, without much oversight, with no discipleship, with limited mentoring other than our coaches. But God had his hand on that place in that time. And during that window there of a couple of years that I was playing and finishing my schooling, at some point I was prompted by the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, do whatever it takes, which is something I always recommend people doing uh, because he will do whatever it takes and uh, you'll be able to get basically get more than you asked for. I had no idea what I was signing up for. It's been much more painful and fulfilling than I ever would have imagined. And I think God honored that because he has done whatever it took. And it's not what I preferred the vast majority of the time. Well, you know, that's funny. That's what I tell people. I go, when you give your life to Jesus, he's not going to make it better. He ruins it. He deconstructs it. (laughs) He he destroys your life and then puts it all back together again. So this whole come to Jesus, you're going to feel good. Oh, what? No, not at all. Maybe down the road, right? But uh, I so, say, I say, if you want to walk with God, you better put on your seatbelt and you better yeah. learn to hit the curveball because he doesn't throw a lot of fastballs. He will. He'll he'll throw some chin balls, but you better learn to hit the curveball if you want to walk with him in uh, fullness and be transformed. For sure. So how does a guy. So my son, my youngest son is a senior at Linfield University, four year starter on the football team. He's a outspoken uh, follower of Jesus, volunteer with wildlife, cool. and, and he's a virgin. So cool. the virgin thing is interesting. A lot of guys nowadays go, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So, what you know, it sounds like you fought for your sexual purity for 48 years. So what would you tell a young guy who's listening to this, who's single and in his 20s, who's saying, I, I'm not going to, I can't live a life of sexual purity. What would you say to encourage that guy? Well, um, let me say this. Number one, until I was transformed when I was 23, I battled the issue. And though yeah. I didn't have... Uh, uh, intercourse, I went way over the line, short of that, grieving, convicted, but disobedient. Uh, that's a whole nother issue of spiritual warfare and bondage and all kinds of things. Pornography wasn't part of the mix then. So thankfully, uh, that wasn't what uh, I was battling. But you know, you crack that door and you're a dead yep. man if you don't align with Jesus and if yep. you don't understand the, uh, the tools and the spiritual disciplines and habits. So in, in the goodness of God, uh, uh, he uh, protected me. In the goodness of God, he punished me far less than my sins deserved. That's a Bible verse, so I wasn't uh, using the punish, the word punish out of context there. It's an NIV translation. And, uh, and in the goodness of God, his grace um, overtook my ignorance and disobedience. And uh, I was able then from that time on to walk uh, a holier, and much holier and did not stumble in the ways that I had stumbled physically. It was still a battle in my uh, mind and soul, but I now walk from a position of victory instead of uh, just progress. You know, what I find is people don't understand there's a difference between, there's a difference between freedom and progress. He didn't come to to have us have progress. He come to set us free. And so once you understand uh, the principles of scripture and the truths and the commandments and and walk in the fullness of the Spirit, understand what that is, and walk in it. You alluded to the word obedience at the start of the broadcast, and that's really the bottom line is this is about obedience. It's impossible humanly. It's only possible by the Holy Spirit, and that's the whole point. He came to show us we can't get it done, not not that we can get it done. So recognizing you have no chance to be obedient without him is, is part of the gospel message. Yeah, that's really good, man. I appreciate that. 
So, so, so you are currently the director of the Robert. I would say I always want to say Robert E. Coleman because <laughs> that's Robert Coleman School of Discipleship yeah. and the West Neal School of Sports Ministry and Faith that's International. Right. So, right. so my high school football coach led me to the Lord about six months after the season was over. Very uh, cool. To this day, he is my vice president of Men in the Arena. So wow. he's walked with me these 45 years. So uh, now he calls me brother, but he's a spiritual father. He's a hero Amen. in our family. Amen. And so it all started with sports. But yeah. this Robert E. Coleman School of Discipleship, is a, it really seems to me to weave beautifully together with sports. Oh, it's a natural. Can you, yeah. Can you talk to us? Our lead, I, I want to focus on this uh, Robert Coleman School of Discipleship because I know the eight steps of Jesus in discipling his men from Robert E. Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. So we're living in a in a season in our country, uh, Scotty, where it's really easy to turn focus inward. Poor me, poor job, poor this, poor that. But when a man focuses his life and energy outward yeah. to benefit others, it really changes everything. And this That's is right. what the school, Coleman School of Discipleship is about. Can you walk us through this school real quick yeah. And, yeah. and how people come to the school? Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, when I teach the stuff you just talked about, I, I call it the four knuckles. So I hold my hand up and, as I am on the screen that you can't see on the podcast right now. Uh, and, and I go through the four knuckles. The first knuckle is you got to be born again. That's uh, the point that, that our walk with God begins. But the second knuckle is a, is a, is a leap. That's I want to know Jesus. I want to know him bad. Oh, God, I want to know you. I want to know you. It, it, you. You have to move from just being born again to a place of some level of passion and commitment to live with a whole heart, a clear mind, a strong will and great passion. And that knuckle, uh, you know, a lot of people don't even get to that point. They just are, are comfortable being churchgoers or church attenders or yada, yada. Because even at the second knuckle, it's still self-absorbed Christianity. It, you haven't even moved into the realm of obedience yet. You aren't even considering making disciples. You may not ever have heard of it or known how it applied or what it would look like. And so the, the, the real problem comes between the second and third knuckles. The third knuckle is, oops, it's not about me. It's about others. And so you move from the self-absorbed, I want to grow. I want to know him. I want to be close to him. I want to feel his presence. I want to see him work. I, you know, I want to gain knowledge. All that stuff is great. But if it doesn't translate into obedience, you never even move to the point of obedience. Evangelism and discipleship aren't even then on the table, which he who wins souls is wise. And he said, go make disciples. And so there's a there's a revelation that has to occur from the word of God by the Holy Spirit that it's not about me. It's about others living the life for others. And then the fourth knuckle is life is mission, which is a whole nother place. The third knuckle is when you realize, OK, I need to serve the kingdom. I need to serve others. I need to care about the lost. I need to care about those who have been found. And then the fourth one is when transformation occurs at the deepest level. This is the level of surrender. This is the level of not my will, but yours be done. This is the level of Lord, do what it takes. I want to know you and I want to make you known. And at that point, life as mission kicks in and that person then becomes dangerous to the darkness because they're now going to go about the works of the kingdom. They're going to get in a position where they'll bear fruit that will last. Before that time, all they're doing is staying engaged with God, which is good. It's just not the end point. It's the starting point. The mission of the kingdom is to advance it by his power, for his glory, according to his word. 
And that's what we're trying to move people to and through with the concept of what we call discipling biblically, which at the Robert Coleman School of Discipleship, again, the name was given to that school because he is my primary mentor in this stuff, uh, had written the benchmark book on disciple making, which is the, which is, uh, uh, the master plan of evangelism. And uh, recognized by, in this generation, kind of the patriarch, the sidekick of Billy Graham, uh, the head of his discipleship when they would do the uh, Billy Graham School of Evangelism around the world. He was the first director of the Billy Graham School at Wheaton College. Uh, they just were partners for many decades. And, uh, and what Billy recognized is that he had a gift for evangelism, but he didn't have an, 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 a, an understanding, which he knew was necessary, of follow-up because 5,000 people would come to the Lord on a weekend at a crusade. And he had no idea the next day where they were at or where they were going, or if anybody was even going to be involved in their life, or if they were even going to go to church. And he was tormented by it. And he first sought out a guy named Dawson Trotman, who was a forerunner and a protege of Dr. Coleman. And Dawson Trotman founded The Navigators. And he wrote a tremendous booklet that I strongly recommend called Born to Reproduce, which you can get for 50 cents a copy. I hand them out like candy when I have this conversation with people so they can see what it looks like practically to invest in somebody with the intent that they'll invest with somebody who'll invest with somebody for perpetuity. This was the, this was the great commission lifestyle, the marriage of evangelism and discipleship. And it was how Jesus was going to reach the world with 12 unschooled ordinary men 2,000 years later. You know, a pharmacist, an educator, a housewife, uh, an accountant, a fish guy, a tax guy, and these unschooled ordinary men, he was going to use as he invested in them and they walked with God together, the father together. He was going to use them to reach 8 billion people 2000 years later, which is exactly what's happening. That's the master plan of evangelism principles that, that you alluded to, Jim. And that's what we're trying to educate people on uh, because there's not an awareness of discipleship in that context uh, discipleship in the American context, in my experience, is basically generalized spiritual growth of a general of nature that may not be quantitative or qualitative and certainly not transformative and certainly not uh, advancing the kingdom, though it may move somebody forward in their knowledge of God and in their relationship with him at some level. Well, the problem with the American church now, Scotty, is, and in my opinion, is We've moved from, you said you call it general. We've moved from training our people to be disciple makers to training our people to be invitation givers. Yeah. Invite, invite your friends to church. Invite, 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 and yeah. the church will take care of them. And, and yeah. honestly, these uh, churches that have this invitation mindset aren't structured to disciple. They're, yeah. Anyway, but I'm not going to go there. But you talked about the four knuckles, and I want to I stop, and I want to talk to our guys. Guys, I want you to listen to what he just said. Four knuckles of discipleship, and 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 I, Scotty, I put them into S's. It makes it easier for me. The first knuckle <laughs> is: Are you born again, guys? Are you are you truly saved? That's the first mm -hmm. S. Do you have a passion for Jesus? The second S: Are you seeking Him? Matthew six thirty three: Seek first His kingdom, His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Third S, third knuckle: It's not about you. It's about the third S. Are you serving? Are you currently tangibly serving the people in your lives for the kingdom of God's sake? Are you serving? And the, and the fourth knuckle is life is mission. In other words, surrender. When we surrender 
to the power of the Holy Spirit, we will do anything he tells us. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Jesus Christ now lives in me. This life I live in the flesh, I live for the Son of God who loved me, gave himself up for me. So guys, you need to assess your life on that. So, so Scotty, I want to jump into Coleman's stuff because I'm just a, a guy who loves his uh, Coleman's book, uh, who's read it multiple times. But you're a guy who trains people, and I think this method works so well. So these guys oh, yeah. listening, uh, this is a great time around the holidays to, to ask God to give them this great Christmas present of somebody they can disciple. Amen. So, so my question, so you know, so when you look at Coleman as he researches how Jesus did it, the mm-hmm. first thing that Jesus did is he chose his guys. Yeah. Uh, Coleman calls this the process of selection. In fact, yeah. he writes this in his book. He says, the initial objective of Jesus' plan was to enlist men who could bear witness to his life and carry on his work after he returned to the Father. Can you walk us through, uh, yeah. you know, the guy who led me to the Lord uh, back in 1984 said, I selected you because mm-hmm. I knew if I reached Jim Ramos, Jim Ramos would reach a lot of people. He purposely uh, yeah. targeted me. So when you talk about selection of Jesus and how you select men, can you walk us through yeah. that? Yeah, that's a, that's a big deal. It's a big deal to Dr. Coleman. He feels that of all the nine, uh, he's actually uh, moved from eight to nine principles because one of them he felt uh, really he needed to expound a little bit more. So he added the ninth one, incarnation. Uh, oh, that where's that? The Holy, well, he, I'll, send you the, uh, I'll send you the clips on it on YouTube where he teaches the nine in a row. But incarnation is the first because until you have the oh. spirit and it fills you, you can't do the other eight fully. And so he's morphed them into nine. It's not in the book, but it isn't when he teaches it now. Oh, Just as an so FYI. Incarnation. Incarnation. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. So selection then uh, is the most critical one out of them because if you select poorly, you've made an investment in a bank that may not translate into any return. And so like the parable of the talents, it's like sticking them, sticking whatever it is in the ground. It's you're not even going to get interest on it. So selection being the most critical deal, what we learned uh, over time, and this is going to be my articulation of it, is that we look for what we call fat people. Now, it's an acronym that started out F-A-T. It's uh, uh, we've then added a letter C and those four letters and I'll describe them are faithful, available, teachable, courageous. This is our vetting mechanism for somebody that shows himself a man of peace who is worthy of investment as best we can discern. Now, now God had was God. And so when he picked the 12, interestingly enough, we joke about this, uh, even God, you know, kind of missed one guy. Now it was sovereign. I'm playing, I'm playing with you. There's tongue in cheek with Judas. Um, and then Matthias take over for him in Acts, uh, Acts chapter one. But basically, God knew what he was doing, and he knew the guys. And they were the unschooled, ordinary guys. They weren't the guys that you would pick. Uh, you know, that's true with David also. If you remember when uh, Samuel chose David, he looked at all the other sons of Jesse first, and then he thought, is there another one? Because I don't see it. I don't, I don't hear that God has chosen any of these other sons. Well, there's my little guy, and he's out messing around with the sheep. And David was the one. And the Lord is always looking for the unschooled, ordinary ones so he can show his glory more. So we don't get mixed up between the man's glory and God's glory. We all have to become nothing if we're going to have any impact. And so he's looking for humility. That's the key to greatness. And David had a core humility, obviously. Moses was the most humble man who, who described as had lived. 
And so we're looking for people that are faithful, available, teachable, and courageous. Faithful means they're men or women, but we're talking men here. This is a man's podcast. We're um, men who will show up on time, do what they say. When they commit to do something, literally they'll do it. Or if they don't, they ask forgiveness. But they got a conviction to do the right thing the right way and stay at it. And they want to follow. They're faithful to follow. Second is available. Somebody could be faithful, but he may be so, um, uh, he may have so little margin. It might be a season of life, which is true for all of us at some point. But in general, if people are too busy with the things of the world or even too busy in ministry, they may not have time. Frosty used to say, nobody has time. You make time. You make time for what matters. If you wait to have time, you're going to wait forever because you're never going to have time. You got to decide what matters. You got to make time for it. You got to grab hold of it and seize it or it's not going to happen. So we're looking for people that are willing to make time, to be available, to be in a relationship, a discipleship that's intentional. That means it's uh, on purpose. It's strategic. That means there's a plan. It's relational. You're going to be in relationship with another person. It's going to be oral. It's about it's not about books and materials. It's about interactions. And it's simple. We use the KISS principle. Keep it supernaturally simple. That's the five pieces of our discipleship model. So faithful, available, teachable is the third. This is the most critical one. Teachability has to do with humility. If somebody thinks they bring something to the table, they're dead. They have to come into it, even if they think bring something to the table, as if they don't, because they're going to learn correlative to how much they see that they have a gap that they need help to the degree that you think you need a doctor, you're going to go to the doctor. If you think you have a cold, you're just going to take a pill. But if you know you got cancer, you're running to somebody as fast as you find out. Well, we're looking for people that are hungry to learn and grow and will do whatever it takes. We'll make the time for it and have the humility to say, I need help. And I think you can help me. If you want to help me, please help me. The fourth one is C for courageous. We added that one after we started disciple making. This for me started in the early 90s at PLU when I was coaching there, in 1992 in particular. And we, I realized that a lot of people, they really wanted to love God and they wanted to disciple. They wanted to evangelize. And they were available. They'd make time. They'd meet whenever I would meet with them. And we tried to meet at 530 in the morning so nobody had any conflicts and also to make it a little bit costly. And, uh, and they were humble. They were teachable. But when it came into investing in somebody else, they were, they were gun shy. They had fear, fear of man, fear of failure, fear of making a mistake, fear that I might do it right, fear it might not work out. And fear kept them from being obedient. And so we learned that we had to add the C there. And in our disciple making, we learned that when we begin a discipleship relationship with somebody, that they need to begin to be meeting with somebody front door, that means in a knowing way, or back door, that means practicing on people, the habits and spiritual disciplines, they needed to do that within the month that they begin being discipled by us, because if they don't do it when they're with us, they very well aren't going to do it when they're not with us. And so we make them disciple while they're with us so that they can practice with supervision, another one of the nine principles, so they can be supervised in the process so that it goes better than it would if they just winged it by themselves. That's our vetting mechanism. That's really good. Well, you know, it's interesting. I've got a guy. I just talked to this guy last night. Every time I talk to this guy, he's bragging about all the guys he's working with, but he's traumatized because none of these guys want help. And I'm like, you're going to burn out investing in guys that don't want help. And then I look at Dale Culver. You know, Dale's been with me since 2003. He's faithful. He's available. He's teachable. He's been with me the whole time. 
So, you know, but the thing about Dale that sets him apart is Dale was hungry to get better and to be his best version. And that's, and that's that partnership has, has lasted for 17 years now. You know, we've transitioned from, you know, high school, middle school guys together to, uh, he was, he took a stint as a gold miner for a couple of years. We maintained contact to working as my right-hand guy now. And I think that's really, really important. And we need fat, fat friends. So they're really good. So this, I just can't overstress this selection principle. It's so important to, you know, it's, it's like the, it's all the whole, uh, it's the whole Indiana Jones, right? The last last crusade you chose wisely (laughs) or he chose poorly. So the, so the first process is selection. I, I, what I say is Jesus called them when he Mm. selected them, but it was actually a calling. He called them. Right. Yeah. So he chose and called them. He selected them. Number two. Well, let me clarify. Is, yes. Not only did he call them is they had to respond to the calling with a like minded conviction to want it as bad together. Both have to want it badly. It's not a project. It's a relationship of mutual desire. I'm looking for fat people who want to find fat people to invest in who will bear fruit and multiply. Well, and I always wonder who cleaned the fish. <laughs> I mean, they dropped those fish and followed, baby. That Zebedee yeah. must have been pissed at those kids. So, hey, so <laughs> number number two is association with these men. In other words, he was committed to them. Coleman writes, having called his men, Jesus made it a practice to be with them. Be with them. This yeah. was the essence of his training program, just letting his disciples follow him in this day and age where everybody's busy and out of t- and running around going crazy or even during covid how does a man associate regularly with another man the way jesus associated with his guys well that in that unschooled ordinary verse which is acts 413 the the, the uh, pharisees are looking at at these 12 guys and thinking where did they come from right they recognize they were unschooled, but they recognize that they'd been with Jesus. And that's the verse that points what Jim was getting at there, that they were with him in a relational context. We call it Q over Q in a quantity of relationship over a quantity of time. It was deep intimacy over time. If I have deep intimacy with somebody, the first Q and only for a day, there's only going to be a, a fragment of a relationship. And if I have limited intimacy with somebody a long time, that doesn't connote into transformative relationship. But when you have a quantity of relationship, intimacy, over a quantity of time, Q over Q as a fraction, then you get transformation. It's true in anything. If I like, if I like baseball, if I passionately pursue it for a day, that not much going to happen. If I mildly pursue it for a year, not much going to happen. But if I passionately pursue it for years, I become adept at it just by the quantity of intimacy and association. Man, this is really powerful stuff. Guys, I hope you are listening to this. So we need to do this over time. This is key. So he associated with his men. The third thing he did was is called the process of consecration. In other words, he, he, he changed these guys. These guys were changed and they're consecrated through obedience. Coleman writes this, they, the disciples were not required to be smart, but they had to be loyal. Walk us through that, Scotty. 
Yeah, people uh, in the circles of the kind of discipleship we're talking about, uh, they talk about obedience-based discipleship. That's another word that people use out there. Uh, when I say nationally, I mean there's organizations that are practicing discipleship of the nature we're talking about, which is a reproductive kind where you're reproducing somebody who reproduces somebody who that's the intent is that there's continually reproduction of people until the Lord returns or you die, which then becomes multiplication. So make sure we hit on the issue of the difference between addition and multiplication. But back to your comment there um, about this association over time and the consecration. If people don't have a heart to obey God, it's you will know that before you choose them. That's why yes. you take your time to vet people until you know and they know. So you you make a pitch like Jesus said, come and follow me. And they understand the cost at some level, but they're going to understand the cost the more they walk with him. But there has to be this mutual agreement of a committed relationship over a block of time that as, as best as possible, they're going to continue. So when I come alongside somebody in a father relationship as a spiritual son, regardless of their age, they could be older than me, they could be younger than me. Normally it's younger, but sometimes it's older, frankly, is yeah. they understand this is a life deal in my mind. It may or may not be for you. I can't choose for you. But for me, I'm, a, I'm coming alongside you to be a partner with you in your walk with God. We have five things we talk about. Walk with God for a lifetime, finish strong, reproduce, and multiply. It's hard to walk with God. Uh, yes. The narrow, road's narrow. It's hard to walk with a God for a lifetime. Lots of people drift into retirement land. It's yep. hard to finish strong. Most people don't. They peter out and just fizzle. It's hard to reproduce. Most people don't. They stay stuck at the second knuckle. And most people don't stay at reproduction. They just stay with addition, which means serving people and them growing, but not looking to reproduce, to reproduce, to reproduce, so that you have a family tree of relationships over time that are reproducing like, like supernatural rabbits, to use a animal metaphor. And yes. so obedience has to be a part of it. And you have to have a heart to obey. You've got to want to obey and to hate sin. And they have to have also, even if they're young, even if they're recently born again, or they've been a Jesus confessor for a decade, but they've never really walked with God in a transformative, intimate way, even thinking about surrender. So that piece is so critical that there be a commitment to be set apart, to walk with God and give it your best shot. I don't think we can overemphasize this point. We are looking to make men and disciple men who are sold out for Jesus, that they're consecrated to Jesus and obedience of scriptures, no matter what the cost. Yeah, That's a huge deal. And that's where that, that fat seed turns up, that courage. We need to find, I mean, we're in a day and age where there's so much compromise out there when yeah. it comes to the Bible. Uh, we need to raise up a generation of men. And our, we're targeting, this podcast targets a man who's 25 to 50. We're calling that guy to step up and change a generation because my generation, quite frankly, has ruined things. We've developed the participation trophy. We've watered down the scriptures. We've made... Uh, you know, homosexuality. Okay. You know, all these things. And it's just a, it's just a, we need a generation of men to step up and to be the change that God is asking for. So the fourth well, thing, yes. Can I comment on that one? I apologize, yep. but this would be very critical. One of the questions that I, that Jim and I posed back and forth that, that might be addressed was what have I found to be missing in men of God? What have I found to be missing? 
And, and what I found over time is that uh, they really, they don't know Jesus through the word of God. Correct. And they don't have a functioning relationship. With, they don't have a functioning prayer life. Now, the bottom line is the vast majority of men, myself included, were never discipled. And so yeah. since nobody walked with them in an intentional, strategic way, they just kind of fumbled along, depending on all kinds of factors that they, some of which they didn't even have control of. And so what, when we started disciple making, we came up with Frost, what Frosty called a toolbox, spiritual disciplines or habits that are biblical mandates, but are not practiced, frankly, in a normative way in the church in America. I mean, there's 10 in our toolbox that are sustainable. That means they'll last reproducible. That means they'll multiply oral simple tools. And I'm going to give you the 10 right now because all of these are what we have as our relational. We don't have curriculum. We have the word of God and we obey it. But within obeying it in our discipleship communities and our families, we focus on teaching the what, why, and how of prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, learning the books of the Bible through a Bible song, learning how to use a study Bible to study the Bible, not just to have a Bible study, but learn how to use a study Bible. You know, if you, if I give you a fish, you eat for a day. If I teach you how to fish, you eat for a lifetime. If I teach you how to teach others how to fish, everybody eats forever. And in order for that to happen, you need to learn how to use a study Bible to teach people how to use a study Bible. The sixth one is five questions that we go over regularly about evangelism and discipleship. The seventh one is sharing your testimony in a simple three-minute version, who I was before, life change, day or window, who I am now. The eighth is accountability, both questions and also the concept of accountability, that it's not lordship. It's coming to build people up, not to lord over them as a disciple maker. The ninth is a gospel presentation. The tenth is a gospel invitation. These are the tools that over time we develop with our disciples and teach them to do with their disciples so they can build a vertical relationship of intimacy with God that has horizontal impact on the spectrum of evangelism and discipleship. There are not habits and tools and practices that are normative in the local church body of Christ to build men to a depth vertically that has movement advancing the kingdom horizontally. Okay, I've got a question. I got lost here between five and six. I have prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, use a study Bible, Bible, uh, go Bible by the song. Bible, Bible song. song? Yeah, Bible song is number four. I can give you all these tools. You can pass your website of just uh, you know documents and stuff. Prayer, Bible reading, Bible memory, Bible song, Bible study. Five questions about evangelism, discipleship. Uh, sharing your testimony, accountability, gospel presentation, gospel invitation. These are all things commanded by God. He said to pray, to read the Bible, to memorize scripture, to know your way around. So we, we teach even the adults, the, the Gilligan's Island tune, the books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So everybody learns it from little kids. You'll go to schools now where they teach this to, so that people can learn their way around the Bible so they don't have to go to the table of contents when you've known the Lord for 12 years. That's insanity. Well, and nowadays they just go to their phone and type it in so they don't yeah. have a clue. It's That's totally a whole other issue so, about, yeah. Yeah, so number four in Coleman's process, it, it, it caused me to ask a question. And number four is the process of impartation of yeah. your life. In other words, Jesus cared for these guys. He gave his life to them. So yeah. my question, Scotty, is how is this actually different from incarnation? 
Well, I would think those are synonymous. Incarnation, yeah. No, incarnation would be the Holy Spirit coming in you, being born of the Spirit. Oh, okay. And an impartation okay. is you imparting. Okay, so you you and I grew up around the Campus Crusade days, which is... Um, uh, I may... He talks about uh, uh, if incarnation is not one of the eight, it's the ninth he added, impartation. He just wanted to make sure that people needed to know on the front end, which is why he now teaches it as the first of the nine principles. Okay, okay. They need to be born again. So I don't know that you want to belabor the point because the impartation that you're talking about is, we're, we're on the same page on that one. It's that the Holy Spirit imparted to you and now we're sharing that impartation with others. Yeah, we're so sharing. I I, yeah, yeah. We're sh- well, and this is the thing that I think maybe we mess up on here is that we say, hey, I'll give you an hour a week of my life. Well, yeah. Jesus imparted his whole life to these guys. Yeah. I mean, he Let's lived with these guys. I'd say to hit that question, just say, ask it this way. Just say, how would you, how would you relate? Uh, is physical parenting like, like spiritual parenting? There's an investment that happens. Is there any correlation between having physical kids and having spiritual kids? And then I'll hit on that issue about the time and the investment necessary for there to be a transformational relationship. Because people just want to have an appointment. They want to have an appointment with somebody. They want to have a meeting with somebody. They're not really looking at an incarnational relationship. They're looking at not a process. They're looking at a program. It's a programmatic view of discipleship versus a relational process that happens over time, that Q over Q piece. And that's where the leader has to really check himself and say, am I willing to do this? Because there's a lot involved when you impart your life to another person, much more than that meeting. So no, that's really good. I appreciate that. So the fifth part of this process is demonstration. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, when we talk about learning anything, it's it's this simple. First step, I do it. Second step, I do it, you watch. Third step, you do it, I watch. Fourth step, you do it, repeat and repeat. That, you know, when I, my daughter, she's seven, when she was one and started eating with a spoon, uh, I ate with a spoon. Two, she watched me eat with a spoon. I then supervised her eating with the spoon and it got closer and closer to her mouth more often. And now she eats on her own with the spoon. Jesus and the father, Jesus walked with the father. The disciples watched him walk with the father. Then he watched them walk with the father. Then he left the planet. They walked with the father. Discipleship is as simple as the most elementary learning vehicle that's ever been created. And in every area, you work at McDonald's, somebody flicks burgers, somebody gets hired. He watched them flip burgers. Then he supervises them and watches them flip burgers. And then he moves on to another area and they flip burgers. This is how they teach everything everywhere. And it's the simplicity of spiritual parenting. Yeah. And I think that's really good. And so that goes back to the first point that Coleman added, incarnation. If I am going to demonstrate something, I need to have it first. (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yes. And so that's that that's that that's why that point is so critical because like begets like birds yes. of a feather flock together I will become like those I imitate and watch and so those who watch me are going to become like me and that's why Paul said that's imitate right. me 
as yes. I imitate Christ. So demonstration. Yes. Uh, number six out of eight is the process of responsibility and authority, giving that away through delegation. In other words, yeah. Jesus challenged these guys. Can you walk us through delegation and what that means? Yeah. Yeah, delegation would be on that example I, I just gave would be that third piece. I do it, I do it, they watch it, they do it, I watch. He delegated. He yes. sent them out two by two. He gave them responsibilities before he even sent them out. I mean, he had them go make sure you get the donkey, make sure the table's set, go check on this deal. And so we want to empower our guys as soon as, as possible to be able to go forward in evangelism, discipleship ways. In our groups, when I start discipling somebody, I'm going to begin de- de- delegating immediately. So Dr. Coleman says, you always have homework with your guys. There's always homework. There's always going to be together. We're going to all read a couple, three chapters, whatever you choose. We do three chapters a day now. We're going to memorize a verse a week. We're going to have a block of time that we pray at least 10 minutes a day as a block, not just randomly throughout the day. Um, we're going to teach them how to use a study Bible so they can st- study the core doctrines of the faith that we're going to teach them how to do within the group meeting, but our disciple making happens outside of the group. We get together once a week just to, to supervise, to inspire, to encourage, to practice, to role play. But our, the work of the kingdom is out. It's not a meeting. You just come together to go out. And that's why even in COVID times, I'm still working with my disciples everywhere through an app called Marco Polo, which is video messaging. We text, we email the vast majority in the upper 90 percentile of my discipleship community is not here in Omaha. I've only been here a year and a half, but I have children who have children who have children who have children spiritually all over the place. And many of them, by mutual choice, we stay in relationship. The discipleship doesn't change. Uh, excuse me. It doesn't end. It just changes based on locale, timing, season, etc. So delegation is critical because the teacher always learns more than the student. And still, until they're in a position where they're discipling somebody else, they don't learn nowhere near as deeply is when they just receive and absorb from us. So we need to get them out there playing, advancing the kingdom themselves in their own circles while they're with us as fast as possible. And we start homework right away. And they have homework assignments to find somebody in the dorm room or down the street or your coworker and just interrupt them and say, hey, uh, can we, during break, can we just take a minute? I, I'm in this group of men and I am memorizing a verse and I have to repeat it to somebody. So do you mind if I just quote a verse to you? and can ask you how I did, that's a little evangelistic fishing. That's a little bit of a discipling. If that guy's a believer, that breaks fear in our disciple, and it also makes him know it more deeply. That's just one simple, simple example of how homework produces a delegation climate that gets people thinking outward and also of teaching instead of just being a student. So, Scotty, as you were speaking there, it got me thinking, I didn't address uh, a ground level foundational point. And, and that point is this, that question is this, when you're doing this, the guys listening to this are going, Hey, this is great, but give me a venue. Are you doing this in a group or are you doing this one-on-one with guys? Uh, discipleship is not in our opinion, one-on-one. Uh, Jesus discipled in threes and twelves. Uh, he was always with the 12. They were always with him in the biblical record and all the gospels. He either was with Peter, James, and John, or he was with the 12. The only time he was in a one-on-one was with an unbeliever or a seeker, Nicodemus, the woman at the well. His disciples were always with him, just like if I have a one and a three and a five-year-old, if I go to Denny's and and my wife's not around, the kids come with me. 
I don't, who has time for one-on-ones? I, I, I work with men. There's sometimes 15 or 20. This is my family. When you keep discipling you're in your community, if you have continuity in your physical location and the word gets out and people start getting transformed and they start saying, come and see, come and see. And we always have guests in our meetings because we want to expand their vision, provoke them, challenge them, and give them a chance to come eat at the table with the king. The king is Jesus in this case. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you have you have a meeting once a week with a group of yeah. men. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so that's a week. And they have their own meetings with their disciples outside of that. And when their family gets big enough, just like in a nuclear family, you know, when, when my kids have uh, married and have kids, they might come for us with Christmas to the in-laws, one or the other. But over time, when their family gets big enough, they don't come to mom and dad's anymore. They got their own family line. And so guys that I meet with, when they start reproducing, there's a time where just practically they can't have gatherings like that where they come with us and also with their own spiritual sons who they're meeting with also. So it's very important people understand these are not one-on-ones. It doesn't mean you won't have a one-on-one. It just means that's not the intent of disciple-making biblically. It's working with groups because the family's all together. When I'm talking to the mature one, my young person gleans. When I coach the young person, my old person gleans. We all learn together. And then eventually within my community, the older disciples disciple the younger disciples. So for instance, if I have a new guy added in my group, because it's organic, this is always evolving. Guys are adding and subtracting always because we're always trying to have people join us and other people work themselves out of a job, which is the whole goal in parenting is to work yourself out of the job. And so if somebody comes in new, I say, who's, who's going to volunteer to teach uh, Bible reading and Bible memory to Johnny this week. And one of my guys who I've worked with for three months or a year and a half says, I'll take it. And so just like in the nuclear family, the older kids start babysitting the younger kids. So parents can go out on a date in the same way. My older disciples start discipling the younger disciples, even within my own family, as you stay at it. Okay. So, so we still have two more points to cover here, but I'm just trying to understand so your groups are not set, like you don't have 12 set. No, that group no. is flowing through constantly. Oh, yeah. And is that oh, yeah. group, you, you try to keep that group no less, no more than 12, right around 12? No, no, I, I'll tell you this. I just had this conversation with one of my disciple guys last night. Um, I, I've, I've worked with 23 people in the room. Um, if I have somebody fat C and they want to meet with me, I want to meet with them. Now, if they're meeting with others, that's fantastic. So we make a differentiation between parents, with between fathers and uncles. A father is responsible. An uncle is available. You can have lots of uncles. I have a bunch of uncles on both sides of my family, but I had one father. So who's your spiritual father? He's responsible for you. Who are your mentors? So uncles are like mentors, but a father's like a discipler. Who's the person that's investing you and you're mutually invested in? as you also have other men in your life that you're going to for other things. Uh, There's things I'm not good at at all. I send my guys to other guys for things, whether they're spiritual things or whether they're natural world things. I'm not the answer, man. I just am who I am trying to give everything I have to my kids and asking them to go and do likewise. So in our groups, we don't put a ceiling on it. You got to decide what you can handle. But frankly, I, I couldn't imagine ever turning down somebody who was fatsy, who wanted to be with me that I thought brought something to the table that was worthy of an investment in time. 
Because what's the difference between five and six? What's the difference between 11 and 12? I mean, if I'm going to have 11, I might as well have 12. Now, there's a big difference between three and 15. Yeah, I would say there's a pretty big difference. When you get over 12, I think there's definitely a dynamic difference. Here's what I found, though. This is just my, my experience, is you clearly won't have as much time for individual needs. But at some point, I had to make this trade. And the trade was this. I'm either not going to, because there's not a lot of disciplers running around. Does that make sense? Correct. So it's not like I had people I could pass them on to often. It's either me or I don't know. That's not because I'm special. It's just because this kind of disciple making is so rare that even people with maturity don't know what to do because they've never seen it. And the reason we found that people don't disciple the way we're talking about the master plan way, what Jesus did with the twelve is either ignorance, they've never seen it or heard of it, unbelief. They don't think you have to do it that way. A small group is enough. Just being in a fellowship circle is enough. Going to church is enough. Attending yada yada is enough. And then when they do believe it, because we show them the math, the difference of addition and multiplication, then they fear because they realize, oh, this is going to cost me. This is going to be an investment. This just isn't a show up and I don't have a relationship that's going to be demanding because parenting is demanding and this is spiritual parenting. Demand demanding and then the fourth one is the cost they don't want to make the time and oh, so yeah. we got to de- we got to defeat all four of those things so there's not a lot of guys out there that have made that fourth knuckle commitment that the kingdom is what they're about it's who they are not what they do it's not a uh, it's not a program it's a commandment it's a calling and so what i found was for me with numbers that if somebody is willing and fat c and if there's not somebody I can delegate them to who's going to be a father to them, then I'm going to father them. And so I'll when you figure when, out how to make it work. So when you find a fat C guy, you let's say your group is meeting at 5.30 in the morning uh, yeah. on a Thursday. You yeah. find a fat C guy. He, you know, This guy comes in your life. How do you invite this guy? What's your pitch to this guy? Well, uh, generally, when you've been disciple making for a while, the word get out, gets out. And I don't have to make the pitch because my disciples are out in the world making disciples and transforming their communities. And people want to know how they got where they got and who they are and how they got there. And so the word gets out. So my disciples come to me and say, hey, I met a guy. I think he'd be a, he's fatsy and I think we should invite him into the community. And, and he'll tell me that either he's discipling him and he wants to come in with us also because one of my disciples said at one time, he said, I'm pouring into my guy, but I, but as long as you're around, Scotty, because you ain't going to be around forever. That's true. I was going to move on due to change job or move city. He wanted, if Dr. Coleman's available, I want to be with him. If he was the grandfather of somebody that I'm meeting under, I'd, I'd love to be invited into the larger family to hear from the horse's mouth instead of from the horse, you know, the one who was, was fed from the horse's mouth. And so what I found is we get people who come in because they're invited my disciples or they know me or I hear about them. The word gets out and they say, Scotty, there's a guy, you know, when I was pastor to church, people would come in and they approach me and say, there's a guy. He's the real deal. He had heard about discipleship. He's never been discipled. He wants it. I've met him. He's really sharp. He's hungry. I sit down and have coffee with him. And if, if they haven't heard of it, I make a little conversation. I give them born to reproduce. I send them an email with a couple little teasers. I have them chew on them and I, they circle back with me. And then I invite him to sit on a group. And he sits and he sees these guys advancing the kingdom. These meetings are powerful because you got men of God 
quoting scripture, articulating the gospel, practicing and role playing within the group, sharing their testimonies. This guy's saying, whoa, I've never even seen men like this. I, I, I didn't even know they existed. And it either freaks them out or they want the water. They want to be on the Kool-Aid, which is what I want. I either want them flipped out or I want them wanting in. I don't want them saying, ah, you know, that's kind of what I've been to. You ain't been to that. And when they see it, the ones who God has touched want to come into the water. So, yeah, this is some powerful stuff. And I'm really intrigued by a lot of things that you're saying here. Because I, I, in my mind, when I hear you talk, I want to close my eyes. I want to see what it looks like. I want to be in the room. Uh, really exciting stuff. So we have two more things to cover here, uh, seven and eight. The seventh is I think this is the missing link in the church, right? So at the church, we're great at delegating to other people, right? But what we're not good at is I've found historically supervision. We just seem to ignore our people once they're doing our thing. So uh, what does supervision Jesus style look like? (laughs) I can tell you agree with me. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, Coleman says this, he didn't say go make converts. Yeah. Um, He, he saw, he saw the conversion and the life, the birth and the life wasn't separated. You don't separate the wedding day from the marriage. I mean, they're two distinct things, but they're not separated. And, and, yeah. the, and the life, somebody's birth and his life, it's all one person. We separate him like evangelism, discipleship are two entirely. They're distinct, but they're married. They're supernaturally knit. It was meant that they piggyback one another, that you go from being born again to being spiritually parented immediately and through a window of time that to the nuclear families, 18 years, you know, in America, they're 18 to 22 years in our home. If that's the amount of time physically we have to spend with our children to give them a chance to function in the world, how much time does it take to invest in a believer for him to be able to withstand the pressures of their flesh, the culture, and satanic forces if somebody's not walking with them over time through the pitfalls that happen in the midst of regular life today? Then this critical part of supervision or follow-up is absolutely a missing link. In America, somebody converts and we give them a booklet and we invite them to a small group where he may or may not know anybody and expect they're going to some way be hungry through all their bondage and fears. It's insanity. Yeah, when I see this, I think of not only discipleship supervision, but ministry supervision, that we're walking with people. Yeah, Yeah, every kind. It seems to be a missing link in the church. And so, no, I appreciate how, and so when I I put C's on all of these, and so this is the one I call, I say he coached them. I think Jesus was more of a coach. I think Jesus was more of a coach than a pastor. I think he would have identified with coaches more than pastors because he supervised them. Because, and here's the other deal. Pastors tend to wait to criticize. Coaches criticize now. They coach now. (laughs) They deal with it now. And in the church, we tend to draw things out. So the last thing, and this is also uh, something that we just don't see anymore, and this is a huge part of ministry, I believe, and this is what I call the process of commissioning uh, somebody Mm -hmm. to reproduce, to to put that person on display and say, I am commissioning you to reproduce. So that's eighth word, according to Coleman, is reproduction. And yeah. talk about what that looks like in in uh, in opposition to uh, multiplication versus addition. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, to, on your point of the pastor thing, I think if we use the word shepherd, you yeah. have a much better sense of what uh, would be the follow up mechanism in a local church. They really are, should be shepherds. Yeah, we tend to see pastors as top down instead of bottom up, and 
that's that's a that's not a good plan. Yeah. Uh, the reproduction piece is is critical. You know, we don't have a visual right here, but here's when I teach it, I'd show a visible and then explain it. But let me verbalize it and hope it makes sense. If I met with somebody, one person, and, and most people don't ever do this, they stay at the second knuckle. But if I met with somebody in what I consider to be an intentional, strategic way, it means I do it on purpose and I have a plan with them. And, you know, what we say to people, if, if you know, for me, my plan, my how-to, my how-to toolbox is the big 10 for me. It's those two, ten, 10 tools and spiritual disciplines, which is our operating system, so to speak. But if you didn't know what to do, I'd say just practice a little bit plan. Just get together regularly and read a little bit, pray a little bit, and talk a little bit about life, and the ball will move forward. It's better than nothing. I'd rather do the lot of bit plan than the little bit plan. But if you don't know what to do and nobody's there to supervise you in your disciple making, but you know you should meet with people, just practice the little bit plan. But in terms of reproduction, if somebody's invested in somebody and they do it, they spend a year, which is a big time commitment, a year with somebody, they, they interact, they meet regularly in person, they interact regularly. And if the second year they did it with another person and the next year, they after 30 years well, of a year involvement with 30 different people, they'd have 30 people that at some level have a vertical relation with God. They may themselves not be doing anything with anybody else because that wasn't part of the necessary blueprint the plan, but they've invested in 30 people who now are born again and have a deeper relationship. That's a good thing. Addition is a good thing. If mm-hmm. I gave you $30, you'd be happy. If, if I found 30 in the street, I'd think, hey, honey, I found 30 bucks in the street today. That'd be a cool deal. Now let's look at disciple making biblically of what Jesus meant. This is the difference of addition. If I meet that same one person over the course of a hypothetical year, but I do it in such a way that I walk with them so that the second year he meets with his own person and I meet with my second person. And if the third year, the guy I met with the first year meets with his second person and the guy he met with the first year meets with another person and then he meets with another person. And if you play that over the same 30 years, that one unschooled ordinary disciple maker who disciples biblically in a way that reproduction is perpetuated he touches 1 billion people. Do you know that 30 double, excuse me, one doubled 30 times is 1 billion? 30. Wow. One, the number one doubled 30 times. Do you know that the number one doubled 34 times is 8 billion? There's 8 wow. billion people on the planet. Within one generation, if an unschooled, ordinary man or woman met one person and taught them how to meet with one person, and they did it for a generation, 30, 34 years, they would reach the world without a cell phone, without money, without a need for rallies or big events, without a bunch. They don't need those stuff. They just need people in their circles, which they have already, and investing in and praying with them and for them and sending them out in prayer and disciple making. I'd rather have $30 billion than 30 bucks. If I'm going to spend a year with somebody, why not do it in a way that the outcome is $30 billion instead of 30 and the difference is a mindset of I'm just trying to move people along in their growth to I want to invest in somebody with the intent that they'll immediately invest in somebody who'll invest with somebody. I'll give you one quickie example. I have a buddy of mine that's ahead of Young Life in, uh, for Grand Canyon University. He's a playmaking maniac in discipleship. He's got a fishing pond that's huge, the college. He's got two, 300 people in his Young Life community. He's got people, staff under him. One of them is a gal named Sarah. And Sarah has been making disciples because she learned from Ryan to make disciples. He meets with 2021 guys 
and he also services the general group as a fishing pond, but he meets with 20, 21 guys. And she meets with 16 girls. He called me out of the blue about a month ago. He said, Scotty, you're never going to believe it. Sarah, who learned it from me, has 16 gals now in high school young life groups who themselves are responsible for 100 other high school students. And he said, and he knows this, we're just playing with numbers because it's fun, it's encouraging. I'm the great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather of 100 girls I've never met. I don't even know their spiritual mothers. I've only met five or six times their mother, who's my granddaughter, but I know my son, and he bore fruit and multiplied fruit that will last. This is the power of multiplication, of investing well in somebody who's fat seed, who will go and do likewise and you stay in that supervised relationship for life, but it changes dynamics as they develop their own communities. That's the power of multiplication. And the American church either doesn't do any addition or addition is where they stop. And they're satisfied with second knuckle living that isn't the pleasure that you have like when you physically parent. My children turn me on. And when you get filled with the spirit to the fourth knuckle, your spiritual children turn you on deeper than the flesh because you know it has eternal consequences for sure. Dr. Coleman says, this is why I get up in the morning. This is why at 93, I have a skip in my step because I'm going to spend all day communicating by email and phone now with my boys, he calls them, who are all checking in with me about how I'm doing. What greater thrill than to have that kind of legacy, which is possible for every believer. Well, and what's ironic is Coleman quite possibly has made more disciples in his lifetime than Billy Graham ever did. But well, nobody will Billy ever nobody will ever know. <laughs> well, Billy and you know Dr. Coleman has talked about that issue, and he loves Billy and is respectful of Billy. <clears throat> and and you know Billy famously said, if he had to do it all over again, he'd meet with twelve guys and yeah. teach them how to reproduce. This and that doesn't a, mean he was going to neglect his gift. It does mean this is the criticalness why we say this. If you have evangelism without discipleship, that's bad. But if you have discipleship, you will have evangelism. Discipleship is the key that invigorates the evangelism. Evangelism may have no impact on disciple making. I agree 100%. So, hey, I really appreciate you coming on. Guys, just a review of what we talked about. Uh, we're going to throw these nine points out there for you. First of all, incarnation. Are you born again? Second thing, find a fat C guy. We call that the selection process. Third, association. Be committed to these this guy or these guys. Fourth, consecration. Watch them walk in obedience to uh, what the Word of God says. The next one, number six, uh, five, uh, impartation of your life. The impartation of your life to another person. Number six, the process of demonstrating your life before others. Seven, the process of delegating authority and challenging those that are following you, that you're discipling. Number seven is the process of supervision. I'm sorry, eight, process of supervision. And nine, the process of reproduction. So, Scotty, where can we go to really dive deep into this process? Oh, got a bunch of options. In terms of resources, uh, certainly I will send you stuff that you can post on your website all of these things from both Dawson Trotman and Robert Coleman. But if they're, uh, if you go on YouTube and put in Robert Coleman, you'll see him teaching. There'll be a nine part sequence you can find should show up first when you Google Robert Coleman on, or excuse me, on YouTube. 
you do Robert Coleman. If you want to go to my website, scottykessler.com, at the top, there'll be a link called Discipleship where you'll see a lot of these documents, etc. On uh, YouTube, if you put in my name, it'll send you to an icon with a cross on it. And if you look on playlists, there'll be two courses there on a playlist where I have uh, uh, 30, 15 minute clips on the what, why, and how of discipleship. These are seminary level courses, but they're super simple about the stuff we just talked about expanded out over a, a course that you could have that you can pick up for free on the YouTube. The first one is on the what and the why, and the second one is on the Big Ten Toolbox explaining what that looks like, how you implement it. So we have YouTube clips of Dr. Coleman. We have a podcast of Dawson Trotman and Dr. Coleman. Books, Master Plan of Evangelism, Dr. Coleman. Uh, Dawson Trotman, Born to Reproduce, is a little booklet you can get for a 10, 10 packet for five bucks. Uh, my website would have physical documents. You could hit on the discipleship link and scroll down and find a bunch of this stuff written out. If somebody wanted to reach out with me, I'd love to hear from them. Uh, I mean that. I'll walk. I just had a call yesterday from a, a superintendent of the schools. He said, I got an eighth grade teacher. She wants to disciple. She connected me up. We were on Marco Polo a bunch yesterday. I said, I'll invest in anybody who wants to be invested in because this matters so much and it's so much fun. So yeah. uh, my cell phone number is 253-318-7284. Text me. Let's get connected. I'm ready to play ball. If somebody wants to play ball or we'll find somebody who'll play ball with you. And you better be fat C. Hey, can I do just one little final thought? I'm sorry. Uh, here's the ignition session that's going to allow this to run. Surrender. Jim already talked about it. Number two. The second one is long praying. We call long praying an hour or more in a corporate community. If you don't have in your toolbox, praying long together with others, the darkness is not going to move like it will if you commit to long praying together with another brother or two. And the third piece is how you stay hot is find the hottest people you know and interact with them as fast and furious as you can. And that will keep you near the fire. We got to do this together. So that's your boots on the ground, guys. Here is what I want you to do to apply what you've heard today. I want you to find a fat C guy, faithful, available, teachable, and courageous, and start discipling him. And as you get going with him, bring another one on. There are tons of resources out there for you. You can do this, guy. I guess the question for you is, are you a fat C guy? Do you have the courage to find other men who are faithful, available, teachable, and courageous guys thanks a lot for listening to this episode thanks so much scotty dale why don't you take us home yeah guys head on over to meninarena.org and get your free copy of the field guide and leave us a positive review for the podcast and you can also uh just email us at info at meninarena.org if you can't figure out how to leave a review until next time fill the wet sand on the arena floor hear the deafening roar of the crowd taste the sweetness of victory smell the stench of battle get in the game Get dirty, grind it out, and men in the arena. If you hunger to be your best version, join us along with thousands of men from around the world. Check out our men in the arena forums. Join on Facebook or on our website at meninthearena.org. While you're on our website, remember to pick up your free electronic version of Jim's Bathroom Book for Men, The Field Guide. It's a daily study of manly words with epic stories in the Bible. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Men in the Arena podcast. Remember, when a man gets it, everyone wins. 
What type of dad are you? Guys, in my 35 years of ministry, I've noticed that guys basically fall into two categories. And in those categories, there are four types of dad or four phases that you pass through as a dad. We just dropped an amazing quiz to help you discover what type of dad you are. Find out what type of father you are and get our custom resources fit to meet the needs and the questions you are asking. Head on over to menarena.org. Join 20,000 men's from around the world and find out the type of dad you are.